begin with a story. Anthony was 40 years old when he learned that he had one year to live. He had a brain tumor that would kill him within a year. He knew that he had a battle on his hands. He was completely broke at the time. He didn't have anything to leave to his soon-to-be-widowed wife, Lynn. Now, although he had never been paid to write by this point, Anthony Burgess always knew the potential was inside him to be a writer. So for the sole purpose of leaving royalties behind for his wife, he put a piece of paper into a typewriter and he began writing. He had no certainty that he would even be published, but he couldn't think of anything else to do. It was January of 1960, he said, and according to the prognosis, I had a winter and a spring and a summer to live through, and I would die when the leaves started to fall that autumn. In that short time, Burgess wrote fervently, and he finished five and a half novels before the year was through. But Anthony did not die. His illness had gone into remission and then disappeared altogether. In his long and full life as a novelist, he wrote more than 70 books. But without that death sentence, he probably wouldn't have written at all. I start with this guy, Anthony, because I ask this question. I wonder how many of us in this room are like Anthony. Immense talent that's sitting there that without some looming catastrophe lies dormant. Why did he start to write fervently? Because he had to. Because he had a sense that his time was up. I think this is one of the great human dilemmas. How do you live in light of eternity when you're not facing a looming demise. How do you do that? How do you live with what's really important? Now, I have specific study time where I'm prepping for this moment right here. Each week, I pour into teaching God's Word. It's a passion of mine, and I carve out time to do it. But aside from that, I live my life. And God sometimes takes things from other parts of my week, and He puts it into into the sermon. This week... Totally apart from study, I was reading in the book of James. And the book of James reminded me that my life is like a vapor. Remember teaching through James, we blew bubbles. How long does a bubble last? Some last longer than others, but overall, bubbles don't last that long. They're here today, you see them, they're definitely there, and they're gone in an instant. Also reading, totally apart from study time, I was in First Peter. And in First Peter... The same author we're looking at this morning in Second Peter says that the glory of man is like flowering grass. It withers. And then I was in Hebrews. Again, just apart from study time, I was, I was reading in Hebrews, and here's what it said. It was talking about the discipline of the Lord, and that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, to which I gave a hearty, Amen! And then it said this, it talked about you fathers, it said, you fathers, you discipline your kids for a little while as you seemed best. And that really hit home, so I thought, wow, those of us with small kids feel like it's not a little while, it feels like it's an eternity in that moment. Those of you who are empty nesters right now, you remind us, you say, no, it's, it's for a short season. It's going to go like that. And then this last Wednesday, my dad, uh, my dad would have been 76 years old. And so as I reflected on my dad's life and prayed for mom and thought about just all the great things about my dad, it, it reminded me acutely this week of how fleeting life is. My dad died a young 70-something. And many of you have lost people as well. 
Death comes quickly, and it respects no one. But we forget that, don't we? I mean, we certainly don't live like that's true all the time. Today we're wrapping up a letter that is specifically designed to turn us into realists. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter prods us for, to, to, to be looking forward. He prods us to think about the end. Think about what's coming. And he knows it's a challenge because we all get locked into our immediate experience. It was 11 weeks ago that we first looked at this passage as we kicked off this whole On Guard series because the passage we're looking at this morning really is the, the, the crux of the letter. It, it has the, the nugget of what the letter is all about. It gets to the heart of the book. It says in 2 Peter 3.17, Since you already know this, since you already know this, I warned you at the beginning, you would be hearing lots of repetition. You'd be hearing lots of reminders and lots of hate forgets. And Peter does that over and over and over again. He's calling to mind past events. Why is this being done? Because Peter's a parent. And parents know this to be true. You don't need to teach your kids new things day after day after day after day after day. Much of parenting is reminding them of what they already know. It's just saying, hey, put into practice what you've already been given. And because that's parenting, that's Peter's spiritual parenting us as well. I cautioned you at the beginning. Sometimes when you hear the word remember, or since you already know this, it's easy to tune out. Oh, I've learned this before. Yeah, but we all know about death, and almost every funeral I walk away from, I go, God, I promise I'm going to live different. I'm going to hug my kids tighter. I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy the moment, because I don't know how much time I have. So remember doesn't mean tune out. Instead, it means maybe this is exactly the way God needs to speak to me this morning. All right, secondly in this passage is this, be on your guard. So since you already know this, this is a new information, be on your guard. And that's where we got our series title, On Guard, because this idea is woven through the entire book. Now, because Peter does lots of reminding, I'm going to do lots of reminding. You have heard this week after week. If you've been with us these last 11 weeks, you've heard this a bunch. But this is a tool for visual learners in particular. When you see a life ring, I hope you think chapter 1 of, of 2 Peter. And I hope you remember that, that the, the life you're guarding is your own. The heart is the wellspring of life. Guard what you let in. Your eye gate, your ear gate, what you think about. Guard your life. Guard your integrity. That's what chapter 1 was about. Chapter 2, the sword be ready for attack. Be prepared for a fight. You want to fall, fight falsehood in your life? Use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And then chapter 3 is a trumpet due to the trumpet blast and the return of Christ. It's an alarm. It's a wake-up call. It's telling you to focus on the, on the future and the certainty of Jesus' return and to guard what you're living for. Guard what you're hoping in. And those are the chapters broken down. Just before his summary, Peter brings up this topic of reading and interpreting the Bible. Reading and interpreting the Bible. Look with me, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist 
to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Pause. This topic of Bible reading and interpretation is vastly important. It's a question I get asked often. In fact, last Sunday I was asked about that. And many times I have people that just go, I have a hard time reading the Bible. I have a hard time understanding the Bible. And I want to draw out just a couple of things from what Peter's saying. First of all, notice that Peter endorses the Bible. If you take this short letter, 2 Peter, here's what you'll see. Peter refers to as authoritative and to be taken as Scripture. Catch this. uh, The prophets, Jesus himself, meaning the apostle Peter, and now he's endorsing Paul. Now, I don't know if you just caught that, but that's the Old Testament, that's the Gospels, and that's the New Testament epistles. Now, there are some other writers that he doesn't endorse, but in this one short letter, he is referring to those writings as Scripture. He also points out that the Bible is worth careful studying and quoting, and he points out that it's challenging. If you're following along in your notes, I've already written this down, but it's challenging. Look at verse 16. Some things in them that are hard to understand. Paul wrote letters that are hard to understand. So if you ever read your, read your Bible and thought, huh, what does that even mean? Here's the Apostle Peter, whom God used to write part of the Bible, saying there are things in Paul's letter that are hard to understand. I find that kind of comforting, don't you? That part of the people that God used to write the Bible, they don't get it either. They scratch their head. Here's the problem. Many, many, many people stop right there. It's hard to understand. And so they stop. Some, if they were raised to trust someone like me, a pastor teaching the Bible, some just entrust it to those, I hope someone's studying this stuff and getting it right. Because I'm sure it's authoritative, I'm sure it's got some good nuggets for it, but it's just too hard. You guys know here at NBC, we don't go for that. I want you to trust me. I do my work before the Lord. However, I also believe that every single Christian ought to be reading the Bible for themselves. And they ought to be struggling through at times for themselves. God, what do you mean by that? That seems to reflect poorly on you. I don't like what that says about you. Is that really who you are? And not just cherry pick the kind of easy to put on a bumper sticker, easy to put in a greeting card passages. Why did God put it in here? What is this about? And to wrangle through that. That means it's going to take some work. It's going to take some digging. And when you dig, it requires tools to dig with. And there's some learning. There's a learning curve that goes along with that. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, I'm, I'm walking along, and some of the passages are so uh, revealing that it's like walking along and just finding the, the nugget of gold sitting on the surface. Anyone could pick that up. But when you press on, you realize, wow, God's, God's put so much more uh, in here for me to discover. Again, let me refer to some conversations I have had uh, most all of these happened this week. One of them happened within the last month. So I'd say all these are examples from this church within the last month about God's word and digging to understand it. I talked to a person recently. He said that since picking up the Bible and reading it for himself, it's given him confidence in his faith that he hasn't had before. Furthermore, it's actually given his spouse a power to do things like forgive that in the flesh wouldn't be possible. Uh, There was a new Christian I was speaking to recently, 
And he said this. He said, the more I read, the more I hunger for it. I'm discovering things more and more and more. And I was just beaming. We're eating a meal. And I said, isn't that fascinating? A physical meal, the more you eat, the less you want. A spiritual meal, the more you feed on it. Man, the more you're like, I need more of that. He goes, yes, that's it. Talk to another person. And he said this way. He said, you know, the Bible gives vocabulary to the Spirit working through me. The Spirit wants to comfort. The Spirit wants to instruct. The Spirit wants to to tell things to people. Um, There's so many times when the most succinct, best way to say it has already been said it in the Scriptures. And, and, And the Word of God in me just comes out as I'm ministering to people. And it's the, it's, it's, it's the Spirit's vocabulary. I thought that was really cool. And one more. A friend told me because I was under a deadline to actually teach some things, I worked hard to understand what was really going on, where in, the, where, where in other settings I may have just kind of glossed over it. And I was richly rewarded for the effort. Now, to my knowledge, uh, none of these have had any biblical training in school. None of these have been called to full-time Christian service in some way outside of being a Christian. They're just walking along and they're understanding that it is going to be hard to understand the scriptures sometimes. The greatest minds through the centuries continue to study this book. We make it here at NBC an ongoing concern of ours that the Bible is being used properly because the alternative to the Bible being used properly is massive damage, and we've witnessed that through the centuries. The Bible used improperly. Now, secondly, the Bible can be twisted. Now, twisted can be kind of funny and innocent, uh, like a funhouse mirror, or it can also be deadly, where, where you think one thing is real and true, and you act on that reality, but it wasn't reality at all. It was twisted, it was distorted, and it can change your life for the worse. Look at verse 16. The unlearned and the unstable. Who are the unlearned and the unstable? The ignorant and the unstable. You will come across some people in this life who oppose your faith and oppose Christ, and they're ignorant, meaning this. Meaning they're simply misinformed. There are some people who just, are, who just don't know. Now, every single Christian lived, was born into that camp. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, even if you were given the Bible from the day you were born, you still grew up with, with ignorance to the ways of God, to the things of God. And then it hits you like a lightning bolt. And Paul's story is that, remember, God peeled back the, the layer on his eyes, basically, to see the truth of who Jesus was. And maybe you got it wrong. You thought it was religious training and religious effort, and that's what saved you. And God was going to kind of pay you back for that. But then you discover grace and you discover the free gift of salvation of Jesus. And at some point, you're shown the truth. So some people you face are just, are just ignorant, meaning that they are misinformed. But there's others, there are other people who are malicious, meaning they have no foundation and so they veer with the wind. They go with popular culture. They, they, they basically take, take the scriptures and twist it and distort it. It says in the last days that people are going to accumulate for themselves teachers who tickle their ears, who basically say what they want to hear. In the last days, people are going to accumulate for themselves teachers, the Bible says, who tickle their ears. What does that mean? It's just what 
saying things that they want to hear. And the more I pondered that, the more I thought, you know, not only is it the things that people want to hear, I like this person, I listen to that podcast, I read these books, but it's also what the speaker wants to hear. They're tickling their own ears. There are times in the flesh where I go, God, would you just let me give um, a message that's easy to swallow? It's hard being a prophet for God. And I'm not saying I'm a prophet any different than a Christian speaking forth the truth of God. It's hard to give the truth of God sometimes, isn't it? In the flesh, I go, man, I just, I just wish I could just kind of coast along and give, give warm fuzzies and funny stories and really warm things. And we all kind of go away going, huh, it's just so good to be alive. But that's not helpful. And so we preach the word of God. And sometimes that's painful. The word twist here is an interesting one. It's a verb that's only used this one time in all of the New Testament. Some of your translations say distort. Some say twist. But it has the idea of stretching a victim on a rack to torture them. And I thought about what some scriptures uh, are treated like. It is like they take the truth of God and they stretch it and they torture that truth of God. And they twist it. And I get so frustrated sometimes. I was reading an article this week. All through time, Newsweek, all the major publications, they will all write about Jesus and Christianity and the Christmas story around this time of year. Don't be duped. There's so many experts that come along, and they're the, they're the, the, the theological so-and-so of whatnot, and, and on they go with these scriptures, and I go, twisted, distorted, taken totally out of context, not even in the Bible. And you know what? They can do that, because we're generally not a very biblically literate society. You couldn't get away with that when common people read the Bible more, but that's easy to throw out there. And they make these dismissive statements and they twist and they torture the word of God. They wrench it until it's forced into saying what they want it to say. And then I got thinking about where does this come from? Think about Satan tempting Jesus Christ. What did he do? He quoted the Bible. Right? He used God's word and he shoehorned it in to say something it didn't say. Three times. What did Jesus do? What's the defense? What did Jesus do to that? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture to counter misquoted scripture. Interesting. Here's one big, I'm not going to get into all the rules of interpretation. But here's one biggie. Let the Bible interpret itself. Jesus shows us a great defense. Now, if you don't know the word and you're gullible, you're a mess. You will be like a person on the seas with no rudder. Because <laughs> you'll hear me say something, you go, that sounds kind of right. And then you'll hear someone else say something on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, then you'll read something on Thursday, and you'll be all over the place. Jesus knew his Bible. He was walking with the Lord, or walking with God, and he wasn't gullible. Verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge. I want you to underline or circle that word knowledge if you write in your Bible. God is so committed to the truth, to knowledge, things that are knowable, that he wrote it down. He wrote a book. He's so committed to it that he says, I'm going to put this in writing. And then he expects those that he appoints to lead his people to teach it. Listen to 
Once again, not in my study. This is in my personal reading. I'm reading this early this week, and I go, I get it, God, thank you. This is from Hosea, a prophet from the Old Testament. Hosea 4.6 says this, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Does God seem seriously intent on his people and their leaders knowing and leaning on the written truth of God? Yes. And if you won't do that, if you will forget my word and not feed them with that, then I will forget you and your children after you. You will lead a desolate legacy by doing that. That's a challenge to every congregant. That's a challenge to every leader. Do not forget the written word of God. Knowledge matters. Now, an utter dependence on correct use of Scripture is timely because the results are absolutely catastrophic. They always start subtle. When you veer off of Scripture, it always starts kind of subtle, but it leads to catastrophe. Look at verse 17. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Now, it would stand to reason that if the Scriptures are able to be twisted and distorted and misquoted and shoehorned in to to say what you want to say, it also would stand to reason that there's a proper way to use the sword of the Spirit, right? There's a proper way to go about reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible. So, a quick little pull-out. I just want to answer this question. What is the proper way? We're not going to get to everything. But 2 Timothy 2.15 says this. It challenges this young pastor, Timothy, to rightly handle the word of truth, implying there's a wrong way to handle the word of truth. Some of you have lived through those wrong ways. There is such a thing as spiritual abuse. There is such a thing as someone taking an authoritative position, using the word of God, and beating up gullible sheep. That's a wrong way. I won't even begin to go down the road of people who have taken the word of God, stood on its firm foundation for personal comfort and gain. That's a wrong way. I mean, our history is filled with wars and leaders and misappropriated use of the word of God. Here's a couple of the right ways. And I'll put scripture next to them. Number one is this. It deserves careful study, and it will require hard work. One of the things you ought to do with your scriptures is understand that through much of history and much of the world right now, we are, that people are not nearly as educated as you in this room. So when people come to me and they're, they're intimidated by the Word of God, they're intimidated by reading the Scriptures, this and that, here's what I tell them. I say, you know what? Much of the Bible, God is just, so much of it in here is able to be read at about a middle school level and a middle school level of understanding, and God speaks to you through that. It's powerful. So don't feel like you need to go off to Bible college to understand the Bible. Don't feel like you need to understand a, an ancient language before you can understand the Bible. God has made it accessible. He's taken the cookies and put them on the low shelf for us, right? Amen to that. That's a great thing. That ought to fan into flame and encourage you. However, why is it that if that's true, 
that people who are barely literate can understand God's word. Children can understand God's word. The greatest minds through the centuries have written volumes and volumes and devoted their life to it and said at the end of their life, I haven't plumbed the depths even remotely of God's word. That's part of the miracle of scripture, I believe. There are many passages you will come across, and I challenge you to do this in your, in your, in your quiet time, in your reading, in your devotion to understand God. God, there's knowledge here. Help me to put in the time and the effort. This passage I've written down, 1 Timothy 4, 7, is talking about training. It's fascinating to me. We live in an area who you talk to any person, you know, just the average person at Starbucks, I say, do you have any eating goals or workout goals in 2015? And I, and I do this because I'm weird, and so don't sit next to me near a Starbucks if you don't like to be talked to by strangers. You know what? The vast majority say, oh, yeah, and they'll start to tell you about them. And then Christian or non-Christian, you ask this question, what are your spiritual goals for 2015? Spiritual goals? What are you talking about? Many people have never even thought that way at all. Christians. Now, back to the thing that I started with. What's most important? If you've been to a funeral lately, you know there's a body laying there. That's not all of who you are. That looks good for a while, but many of us, it's on the way down, right? It's getting harder and harder. So food and workout, that's pretty temporal, 1 Timothy 4, 7 is talking about the idea of training. There's planning that goes into physical workout. There's a regiment. There's discipline. There's these things that come around that you go, man, I've got to stay on this. Is it going to be hard? Absolutely. Does everyone understand that? Absolutely. Why would we think that's any different in the spiritual realm? He points out, you know what, physical training, there's some value to that. Some. Spiritual training, it's eternal. There's eternal value to that, so get on it. Here's the second one. Draw meaning from the Bible instead of putting meaning into the Bible. What I mean by that is exactly what Satan was doing. He was taking the Bible and he was putting his meaning onto it, overlaying it. The Bible's a little bit like statistics. You can get statistics to say a lot of different things. But people who work with statistics a lot say, that's not... That's not an, a, a, a way of dealing with st- statistics that's truthful. You're not, you're not, you don't have no integrity by using it and making it say that. That's taking the actual reality, the information, and it's twisting it and distorting it like a funhouse mirror. Turn to the back of your Bible for a moment. Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation 22, some of the last words of the Bible, and Revelation, I believe, supernaturally was put in the canon of Scripture at the very end. And it says this in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, good interpretation says you interpret in light of the original author's intent just right there. So he's talking about revelation. But once again, I believe God put a bigger picture that this is how the Bible concludes. 66 books, a library of books called the Bible. The word Bible means book. And at the very end of it, here's what we read. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So tied very closely into 
drawing meaning from or putting meaning into the Scripture is this. Don't add and don't subtract to the Scripture. Let the Bible speak for itself. Now, if people who oppose the Scriptures understood the Bible, they could do some things. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible says there is no God. An atheist could grab this and say, look, the Bible says it plain as day. All of your Bibles right now, without you even needing to look, I promise you it says that. Here's why context is so important. The passage actually says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Over and over and over again, you could grab things and you could put them out and say, the Bible says this. It's emphatically true. There's no way you can dance around that. And then to come at it and understand the truth of it, you say, that's deceptive. That's taking the truth and putting your own truth in. We don't deal with this. We don't put up with this in any other aspect of society. Have you ever heard of a defamation lawsuit? Do you know what libel is? That's, that's you taking and writing falsehoods about other people. I'm reading articles this week that I'm getting fired up. My inner lawyer is getting kicked into gear saying, you are misrepresenting God. And no music person would, would allow that. They would send their lawyer team after and say, you're ruining my career by writing falsehoods about me. You're taking what I've said, the actual words I've said, but you're not putting in context, and it twists the whole meaning. God gets that done against him all the time. We don't put up with it in other places. There's a way to read and interpret. The next time someone comes to a Bible study and you guys all read the passage and everyone says, and there's poor leadership, and everyone says, well, who can know? It's all just open to interpretation. You ever been to that Bible study? If I ever go, I go once. That's frustrating. Because it does matter what the Scriptures say. There is truth to be found there. It is okay to disagree and come at it. But if your arguments are, I think, I think, I feel, I once experienced, and the other guy's pointing out Scripture, guess who I side with? I side with the one who's got the Scripture to back it up. All right, here's another one. Submit to the Scriptures and don't stand in judgment of them. James 4.11 points that out. Here's another one. Know that the Word is sharp and that it divides. Know that there are things in Scripture that will divide. They will take your desires here and your desires here for God, and it will draw a line and show and separate those two. That's happened in my life many, many times. Jesus comes and says, you know what? The the truth of God divides households. There will be some in your own household who will hate you for your faith. It also reveals is what that passage is talking about. Here's one more. Know also that it builds up and accomplishes God's work. The Word of God won't return void, meaning that it goes out and it accomplishes its work. That's why we work hard around this place to keep coming back to the Scripture. We don't worship a book. We worship the God of the book, but the best way to know the God of the book and the way God speaks primarily to us is through the book. So don't be a worshiper of the book. But that's why we keep coming back to God's written Word. Now, what else is there? That's not an exhaustive list. I want you to come prepared to your community group this week, ready to explore and say, here are some other proper uses of Scripture. Here are some other ways that we can guard against not veering off into using the Scripture, wielding it like a weapon for our own self. 
so that we can be right and look right. We're closing off the whole On Guard series this morning. And I want to close it off with a call to personal growth because that's where Peter goes. Look at verse 18 of 2 Peter 3. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But grow, he says. I want to show you a really simple way to regard Christian growth. Ben and I got to go to a pastor's conference this past fall with our wives, and a guy by the name of Tom Mercer uh, put some things on paper that I thought, man, I love simple. I love taking big complex and bringing it down to just really making it simple. And he kept saying, you know, the Christian life's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. So I want to I show you some things. I think it will be helpful for you. To kind of set it up, I want to read for you from John chapter 15. You don't need to turn there. You can look at this later to make sure I wasn't making it up. But this is John chapter 15. I just want you to listen to it. Sometimes reading and listening is different. When you hear words fall on your ears, it sometimes does a little something different to you. The picture is that of God as a farmer and Jesus as the true vine. Here's what it says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can... Bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. By my count, in the NIV, that's nine remains and seven bear fruits. Question, does Jesus have short-term memory loss? Is Jesus a spiritual parent? Yeah. Hey, I want you to get something. Remain in me, and he'll bear much fruit. I want you to get it so bad, I'm willing to repeat myself. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Remain in my love, and you will bear much fruit. By the way, let me say it a different way. If you don't remain in my love, you won't bear much fruit. That's a powerful passage. I don't know if you can tell who mentored Peter, but Peter does the same thing. He just repeats himself. Why? Because he cares that his people get it. And he learned that from Jesus Christ. 
All right, those of you who play Cranium and would willfully and joyfully pick the data head card, you're going to love the next few minutes of this, okay? I want you to pull out a pen or a pencil. I want you to turn your paper over, and, uh, and I want you to draw um, two, two axes. And I've got a magic chalkboard up here with a magic piece of chalk that doesn't get my hands all chalky. So I want you to draw a couple lines. I want you to draw one line growing up and one line going to the side. And you can label the first one personal growth. Remain in me. Remain in me. Remain in my love. The second one I want you to label personal mission. Bear much fruit. Now there's four quadrants. You can draw another set of lines that looks something like this, and we're just going to label these quadrants, okay? If you take the first quadrant, which would mean there is little to no growth and little to no fruit and no desire to grow nor bear fruit, here's the word I want you to write in that quadrant. I want you to write the word mirror, as in you better look in it. As in if you are in that quadrant you should really question if you're in the faith. No personal growth, no fruit. No desire for personal growth, no desire for fruit. You ought to really question whether or not you're a Christian. Is that even biblical that we should question our faith? Yes. Very much so. You ought to look at that. That's quadrant number one. By the way, the Bible talks about much fruit and little fruit Christians, can't find any place where it talks about no fruit Christians. That's quadrant number one. How about moving up the personal growth uh, line? So that means high on the personal growth, short on mission. Here's what you can write there. Moralist. A moralist is always intent on learning more. They're all about going deeper. They're all about growing and knowledge, but they are somewhat indifferent to the lost. They are passionless about the works that God has called them to. And so they are moralists. I think many people who have a church background grew up in in a moralist environment where there was a lot of personal holiness, there was a lot of, of growth and knowledge, and we need to disciple people. And what that usually meant was give more knowledge to them or more spiritual disciplines for them to, um, to bear. People sometimes get confused and call this discipleship. How about moving along the other line where there's high personal mission, but very little personal growth? The word that was shown to me for that one is manipulative. High on getting things done, but not much dependence on the Lord. Not much remaining in His love. Not much growing in personal holiness. It's a little bit like proclaiming a product that you don't believe in. You're super hyped up about selling Chevys, but all you drive is Ford. That's a little off, isn't it? I don't really believe the product, but let me just share the gospel with you. Let me do these good things for God. That's the person who's high on mission, but low on remaining. All right, up and to the right. We know the upper right quadrant's the right one. What do we put there? Here it is. Maturing. Shared this with you probably a month ago. I stole this from this guy. He says, we have no mature Christians at our church. We only have maturing ones. Mature sort of indicates that you've arrived. 
No one's arrived. Not yet. We might do your funeral and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Then you've arrived. So I don't care if you've been a Christian for one day or one decade. If you remain, you will bear fruit. You're maturing. You find yourself in that quadrant. Sometimes people pit discipleship and evangelism against each other. I'm utterly convinced they're not in competition. They're one and the same. People might look at this quadrant and go, oh, you're talking about discipleship and evangelism as if they're two different things. They're one and the same. A guy comes with poor motives to question Jesus. He says, what's the greatest commandment? And what Jesus says to him, what is it? You, you, know, you, know, you know the Bible. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's personal growth. Jesus gives a two for one. Did the guy ask for the top two? No. He asked for one. What does Jesus do? He says the second, catch this, is just like it. You know what the greatest commandment is? Love God, remain in me. But the second is just like it. What is the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. What happens if you take those two and you rip them apart and you put them in competition with each other? You're working against God. Jesus says, remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Jesus' question about the greatest commandment says, love the Lord your God, and the second's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do those two things. That sums up the whole Bible. Are you sick and tired of reading? There it sums it up. Start meditating on that passage for Jesus. He says that sums up all the law and all the prophets. What's that? That's the whole Old Testament. You want to grow, you remain in Jesus, you grow up in him, and you bear fruit. That means you get on God's agenda, God's mission. 2015 is almost upon us. What if every Christian in this room set the goal next year of saying, God, I want to remain in your love. Jesus, I want to be found faithful at the end of 2015. And more than that, I want to to grow up in you. Show me what that looks like. I want to be going up on the remain in my love. And what if every Christian who was wanting to be a disciple of Jesus Christ took seriously what Jesus just said, or it's the top commandment, love Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, God, would you give me one? Would you give me one person in 2015 that I can open my mouth with, not be ashamed of the gospel, bear, bear witness to what you are and who you are as a Savior, and would you allow me to be part of the process of bringing them to faith in you? A couple thoughts. Would God be pleased by that prayer, by that goal? Would Christ be honored as you pursued that? Would you be doing something worthwhile and eternally significant? And finally, do you think God would bless and honor that prayer? What kind of issues would the leadership team at Neighborhood Bible Church have if everyone sitting here who loved the Lord took that challenge and God answered that prayer? We'd be scrambling for more parking. That's it. We'd be trying to figure out how do we get people who can pour into these brand new baby believers that that need to be shown the faith and grown up in the faith. 
many of you who have a weeknight off right now, you'd be cleaning your house to get it ready for community group because we've got to have people meeting in your home to, to gather and fellowship and pray and be in each other's lives. Those are the issues we'd be scrambling to figure out. Conquering Roman heroes would have a servant following behind them chanting this peppy slogan, Memento Mori, which is Latin for, remember that you will die. So, Roman hero going through the streets, celebrating his victory. That servant is behind him, chanting that over and over. It was designed to instill humility in the, in the champion and designed to remind him of the fleeting nature of glory in this life. Peter is reminding Christians of something. The end is coming. You too will die. It's the end of you or the end of this planet as we know it. I long to be found hard at work and much in love with my Savior. And I suspect many in this room are the same way. What do you want for Christmas? Man, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found much in love with my Savior. Those are the things that absolutely matter the most. We're about to sing a song called Captivate Us. I think some in this room are close to Jesus. And you're bearing fruit. Some of you are bearing much fruit. It's not how you thought it would be. It's not how you dreamt it up. Sometimes God's path for bearing fruit is very, very painful. But I see a lot of people who are remaining in the love of Christ and bearing fruit. My invitation to you is keep going. You know that all of us lean toward one quadrant or another? Balance is that... Is that you know, happy point that happens oh so briefly as we run from one extreme to the other. So if you're leaning too far in the mission side without really depending on Christ, man, get some brothers and sisters to, to kind of help you lean back. If you're the type that's all about you and God and growing deeper in knowledge, but you rarely interact with this world that God came to save and love, man, take a step of faith. Get around people who are doing that all the time and say, I need help in that. Find balance that way. I think others of you in this room, though, have just wandered. You've wandered away from this. You've wandered away from from guarding what's important. And I think it's common, and I think that's why Peter wrote his letter. I think that's why we see so many places in Scripture that talk about this. I think that's why Jesus gave the instruction to remain is because it's so stinking common to wander. Jesus said remain, and you haven't. You know what the gospel is? Here it is. Ready? You still can. That's the good news. You haven't remained. You haven't been found faithful. You still can. Come back. Peter was restored after a very public moral failure. Think about that. Ultimately, the glue that kept Peter bound to Jesus was the outpouring of grace that he received when he faced his Savior after his sin. Remember? Jesus asked him this question three times. Peter, do you love me? What does Peter say? He says, I do, Lord. I know I didn't remain, but I'm back. I'm here. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, I do. And then, Peter, and then Jesus says what? Remember? Feed my sheep. Remain in me. 
Get about the work that I have for you. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Get on it. That's discipleship. That's it. Not rocket science, right? So what did Peter do? Well, he ended up dying for his faith. That's what he ended up doing. He was murdered by the very people he predicted in this letter were opposed to the faith. But before he died for his faith, you know what he did? He pastored the flock. He loved them. And the way that he fed them was he taughted, he taught and quoted and depended on the written word, the scriptures. That's, that's what we're doing here the same today. All these years later, around the world, this same pattern is going on and on. As we sing this song, let God continue to speak uh, just through the, through the words of, of the, the music we sing. Let me pray. God, in this season of Advent, we are anticipating your return. We anticipate celebrating the day you rock this world and change history forever. But God, we also look forward to your return. I pray that you would set our hearts and our affections there. That we would long to see you, God. That you would be enough. And Father, I pray that you would bind our wandering hearts to you because we don't have the strength to remain. But God, you've called us to that and we're going to partner with you in that. And we're going to marvel at the fruit that comes from following your very, very simple path of discipleship to remain in you and bear much fruit. We love you. We praise you this morning for your work. Amen.